I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. This episode of LiveWire is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit the Progressive website to quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate, and then their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. All you need to do is choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. And here's the failed writer's almanac for Saturday, <laughs> September 17th, 2011. It's the birthday of failed writer Carol Tinsky Evans, born in Larkspur, California, 1962. As a young girl, Carol loved to write about the various grades of pencils in her father's drafting studio. Wrote short stories about Family Feud host Richard Dawson and her own love of porridge. It was her sophomore English teacher who first recognized Carol's unique style, saying of her writing, quote, I've never in my 22 years of teaching been so freaking bored. I'd rather read a carpet catalog, end quote. In her unpublished memoir, Serials I've Enjoyed, Carol wrote, Special K is crunchier than I remember. I need milk. She quit her job as an insurance actuary in April of 2007 to pursue her writing career. But she now works at the one-hour Martinizer down the block from the Meineke near the bank that used to be a pizza hut. Here's a poem for today by failed poet and plumbing contractor Chester Matthews. The title is Sunshine. Your eyes haunt me like two haunting eyes that haunt with the haunting. Your lips part like two lips who are in argument over the lost finale. I belong to you, mostly because I owe you the $50 from the TGI Fridays thing. But would you stop throwing that in my face, God? And that's the failed writer's almanac for Saturday. Be as good as you can, quit trying, and please stop sending me unsolicited manuscripts. Next up on your public radio station, she dreamed of being a writer but had to settle for a life in audio vaudeville. It's, it's... Welcome to the show. I'm your host, Courtney Hommeister. And you also have more comedy from Faces for Radio Theater to look forward to. Poet Scott Poole with What I Learned Tonight, wherein Scott sits in our audience, and in just one hour, the amount of time it takes Maya Angelou to deposit her checks from Hallmark, he writes a poem that encompasses all the lessons he's learned. And of course, music from our house band, Ralph Huntley and the Mutton Chops. Thanks, Ral. So I mentioned uh, earlier that we're having Katrina Scotto DiCarlo on the show. She's a storyteller. Um, her story, yes, 
is going to make you uh, look differently at the people on the bus tomorrow. You'll understand that later. Uh, I also mentioned we were having documentary film director Kurt Ellis on the show. And one of the many projects Kurt's working on is one that he co-founded called Food Corps. And Food Corps is an organization that's working with schools and school kids to educate them about nutrition through teaching them to garden and bringing high-quality local foods into the cafeterias. So essentially what they're seeking to do is redefine cafeteria food. And, yeah, it's great. But this got me thinking about the kinds of foods that I grew up with. Um, And most school lunches haven't really changed a lot since I was a kid. There are still tots. uh, There's the corrugated pizza. And uh, those little milk cartons that you have to be an engineer to open. Uh, But it wasn't just our school lunches that set us up for nutritional failure back then. It was pretty much food in general. I realize candy is unhealthy regardless, but ours seemed like it was trying to win a contest. Uh, We had those little wax bottles filled with neon-colored sugar water that you would drink after gnawing the wax top off. Do you remember these? We had edible wax lips. Uh, Pixie sticks, the cocaine of candy. And of course... Candy cigarettes, which I think were pitched in the same meeting as chocolate-coated shivs. (laughs) But uh, our regular meals weren't much better. I grew up in the era of the casserole, like many of you. Uh, The era where you would take a fresh vegetable and you would slather it with cream of chicken soup and mayonnaise and cheddar cheese, and then you would bake it until all the tiny little nutrients drowned in a sea of salty, fatty goodness. And and actually, if you tried to diet, you were just as screwed. We actually had a little caramel-like candy-slash-diet aid that was very unfortunately called AIDS. A-Y-D-S. AIDS came in boxes that they looked just like C's candy boxes, and they tasted just like caramels. So I actually used to sneak three or four a day from my mom's hidden stash. Um, Turns out, uh, they contained benzocaine, which is a local anesthetic that would actually numb the top of your tongue and dull your sense of taste. But they actually, they didn't work that well because I found them delicious. Um, And I ate a lot of them. And now uh, you watch the old commercials on YouTube of the women talking about how much they enjoy AIDS and how AIDS has helped them lose so much weight, and you can imagine why that product is no longer on the market. Um, And then there was Tab, uh, a diet drink. I think it's still around, but at the time it had saccharin in it, which wasn't just carcinogenic, it was really like just liquefying cancer and putting it into the can. So our generation, we've survived some stuff, nutritionally speaking. And sometimes I actually wonder if that's the reason why some of the school administrators are fighting bringing healthier meals into schools. Maybe they're thinking, hey, you know what? I had to survive it, and I'm a better person for it. What's next? Attractive band uniforms? Empathy shots for mean girls? Deal with it, wusses. But at least in some districts, they're open to the idea. This year, actually, in many Portland public schools, students had lunches like black bean and corn salad with cilantro, curry chicken and chickpeas, and field greens with marionberry vinaigrette. And I'm not bitter about that. I'm not. I'm happy for them. Because, yes, enduring hardships makes you stronger. But Sloppy Joe's and Salisbury Steak aren't actually the character builders you'd think they might be. Besides, who am I really to say anything? My tongue's still numb from all the benzocaine. Thanks. (laughs) Moving on. Canadian indie musician Dan Mangan has been touring pretty much nonstop for the past eight years through the U.S., Canada, Europe, Australia... Last year, he stopped in his hometown of Vancouver for two whole months to record his latest record on the Arts and Crafts label. That label also is the home of Feist and Broken Social Scene. And two days ago, just two days ago, he was in Liverpool, and now he's with us with songs from his new record, Oh Fortune. Please welcome the very possibly jet-lagged Dan Mangan.
Dan. Thank you very much. It's great to, to have here. you here. There um, is a serious positive energy in this room right now. This is <laughs> it, there is. A wonderful place to be. We're very happy to see you here in America. I'm very happy to, to be here. I really like this town. I think Portland's A+. It's A-OK. Well, I know you just got back from this giant European tour, and you're about to embark on this giant American tour. Uh, some dates, actually, with Blind Pilot, who we just had the sh- on the show last week. Yeah. Yeah. They're, yeah, no, they're, they're kind enough to, uh, to take us out. I'm really excited. Uh, we've, we've done a little bit of touring in the States, but really not enough. And uh, we've actually done quite a bit more in, in Europe and Australia than, than here in the States, which doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Really. Well, I don't know if you've been paying attention to any of the news, but we actually don't have a lot of money here in, <laughs> yeah, the, no. in America. You know, I heard that. Um, yeah. Um, but yeah, I'm sure people will come. They'll have enough to come to the shows. Yeah. Um, so you are touring We're with Blind Pilot. We're giving away mortgages at the shows, so hopefully they'll... <laughs> Excellent. Just giving away houses. Um, <laughs> so you are touring with Blind Pilot. How often do these uh, tours... With, where, where you tour with other bands, how often does that turn into a creative collaboration? I think quite often. I, I think, if nothing else, it always turns into a community. I think that's the coolest thing about being a musician is that you spend all this time traveling around the world meeting other people who are doing the exact same thing, traveling all around, and everyone's in a position where you know, they, they have a purpose to meet each other. So uh, it's great. And you know, I, I think often um, bands, you know, Blind Pilot, maybe others, probably ended up forming on the ashes of all the other bands that everyone in that band was in. Right. Um, and some of them become producers and make records and stuff like that. So it's, it seems like, in general, it's a, the music world is much smaller than it appears. You know, everyone cross paths all the time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> 
So um, I was listening to this to this record, and um, there's this amazing song that opens it up. It's called "As Helpful as You Can Be Without Being Any Help at All." Yeah, um, which is kind. Of, it's a kind of a self-reflexive title, because the title "About As Helpful as You Can Be Without Being Any Help at All" is kind of indicative of of the title as helping you understand what the song is about. So, it's uh, <laughs> it's like it's like this beautiful it's very irony meta. wrapped in an enigma, wrapped in irony, wrapped in an enigma. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll d- definitely tell people to listen to it so they can try and figure that out. Um, but when the song starts, it's very simple, and then there's these sort of ominous swelling strings, and then horns come in. It's really as if you sort of have your own orchestra. And I'm just wondering, as a songwriter, what that feels like the first time that you hear all of those instruments coming together that you've written. It's pretty amazing. Um, and I, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm the first to say that I uh, am very, very lucky. I have a lot of really incredible musicians around me um, and people that I've kind of hassled and, and irked enough to come and play with me. Uh, it's nice. And then when you see it all happen on stage, we did a, a show in Stanley Park in Vancouver uh, a couple of months back, and we had the full 15-piece band, and there was like flutes and woodwinds and horns and strings and keys and everything. And uh, when you hear it for the first time all together live, it's a lot different too, because you spend you know endless hours in the studio toiling away, trying to make sure that it, you know things are working and then when it all just happens live, it doesn't matter if it's working or not because it's happening, and then that, that is exciting in and of itself. So. Yeah, is it daunting for you when, when all of these musicians are coming in and it's one song? And Yeah, it, I, I would say it's incredibly intimidating being surrounded by people who are probably much better musicians than you are. Uh, that's, uh, that's intimidating for me. But, it, you know, it works. There's, um, there's just something that, uh, that happens when... When you play classical music too, if you if you kind of grow up playing a trumpet or a French horn, um, what I've found is that there's this really amazing pool of musicians in Vancouver and actually the Pacific Northwest in general of people who kind of grew up as band nerds and then got really good looking in their twenties and started (laughs) indie rock bands, and uh, and now they're like totally cool and everyone wants to be them, even though they were like band nerds in high school. So. And played classical music. Yeah, exactly. Nice gig. Yeah. Speaking of daunting, just one, one more question. Is it daunting to be from the same country as Celine Dion? How will you ever, just how do you ever feel like you can measure up? You know what? I'm pretty sure Vegas purchased her. So I think, it, I don't know, we, don't have to, we don't have to worry about it anymore. Excellent. Excellent. Well, you're going to sing another song later. Yes. Everybody, okay. Dan Mangan. Music tonight is brought to you by Dave's Killer Bread and the bread of the week, nuts and grains. Packed with nuts and rolled grains, it's a bread for humans that squirrels might enjoy. Which means you might want to take that sandwich inside, away from their beady little eyes. Super creepy squirrel squeak. Protect your lunch. Dave's Killer Bread, making the world a better place, one loaf of bread at a time. presents That Guy at the Movies. Tonight, we take a look at a classic episode from 1998's Saving Private Ryan. Yeah, right. Hey, Mike. 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 What? Mike. See that up there? All that? Yeah, totally wrong. Dude, be quiet. We're, we're trying to watch the movie. Sending a company to save one guy? Yeah, total BS, man. I don't care. Shut up, okay? Oh, pfft. look at that. Come on, jeez. Mike, tell your friend to shut up. Vic, shut up, man. Britta's getting annoyed. Uh, yeah, I bet she's annoyed. So would that battalion commander if he saw that captain ordering his company to walk a ridgeline at dusk? <laughs> I mean, they're sitting ducks up there. Look at their silhouettes. Tell Unbelievable. Us later, okay? Oh, why did you even bring him? He's a huge war buff. I thought he'd like this movie. Plus, I could ask him what all the acronyms stand for that they don't explain in the dialogue, like OIC. Officer in charge! Yeah, I got it, Vic. You told me a half hour ago. God, he is so annoying. It's almost over. Oh, oh. oh yeah, right. Okay, see that mic right there? 
That's a panzer tank, okay? The main tank of German infantry. But what's that on the side there? What's that there on the side of the tank, Mike? It's a British fuel canister from 1946. So let me get this straight. Hitler had a time machine, okay? And then he, he goes forward in time and he brings back a gas can from the future and then from the enemy side too? And then he slaps it on one of his own tanks? I mean, seriously, who are they trying to fool, Mike? Vic, it doesn't matter. Be quiet. <laughs> Whatever, Mike. Drink the Kool-Aid, okay? I guess you live in a world where a P-51 uses 80 caliber ammunition, right? Or, or, or I suppose you think it's just okay that American GIs strap their cigarette packs to the left side of their helmet. Yeah, really? right! You shut up! I don't care about any of that, I just care about watching the movie without having you yammering about every insignificant indiscrepancy! Okay, the main guy just died while you guys were yelling at each other. Damn it! He wouldn't die like that. I mean, come on, no way. For listening to that guy at the movies. Next week, that woman on her cell phone during the King's speech. That was Sean McGrath, Paul Glazier, and Trisha Ferguson. Tonight, we also want to bring a new addition to the Livewire cast to your attention. David Ian has joined us as our sound effects master. David was with us uh, for a few shows about seven years ago, right? Well, welcome back to the show. Um, I was wondering uh, if you could tell us in sound effects um, how it feels to be back at Livewire. You're listening to Livewire Radio, radio variety for the ADD generation. Coming up on Livewire, storyteller Katrina Scotto DiCarlo, documentary filmmaker Kurt Ellis, and poet Scott Poole with What I Learned Tonight. That's coming up later on Livewire. We'll be right back. is a storyteller, but she's also what she calls a local business hugger. She started Supportland, an incentive program that encourages people to buy from local businesses. Yes! Well done! Last year she performed at Backfence PDX, which is a Northwest storytelling event. She told a story there that she can't really tell on public radio. But now she actually has a new, sunnier tale that still features illegal acts, but the statute of limitations is up on them. So please welcome Katrina Scotto DiCarlo to Livewire. So I am going to tell a story from when I was 16, which is awesome, because when I was 16, I was this tough girl, kind of like a beat poet a little bit, and my mom didn't like deal with any pansy sort of free-range parenting style. Instead, she went whole hog for the out-to-range, you-could-do-whatever-you-want parenting style. It was an awesome combination. So uh, this story is about when I was 16, and I was done with high school. Forget high school, so lame. And so, <laughs> yeah, not so lame, actually. Um, but I decided, it was October, and I was like, yeah, I'm done with this. I'm going to hop the Greyhound, which is something I liked to do back then, because I was so beatnik. 
And so I like, you know, tucked Gary Schneider's Turtle Island in my back pocket and hit the road. And uh, I got a Greyhound up to Northern California where my sister lived, and she had this rad double-wide bungalow in the redwood mist sort of scene. And I went up to visit her, and we did all this frolicking hippie activity, like bread making and fire dancing in the redwoods and whatnot. And then it was time for me to get back to high school. And so she drove me back to the Greyhound station. And we were stoners, so we were three hours early. And we're sitting there for three hours, like, okay. And we decide, you know, she's got a bag of shake in her car. It's Humboldt County. We have rolling papers and empty Altoid tins, so we're going to roll as many joints as we can in three hours, and I'll hit the road with those. That's a great idea. <laughs> so <laughs> we roll a lot of joints, and the bus comes, and I bid my sister adieu, and I go to board the bus. Now, I was no virgin to the hound. <laughs> I knew that the minute you went past the bus driver, you had a 30-second window to make a decision on what passenger you were going to sit next to for the next 13 hours. And it's a small window. You better judge a book like a cover fast, right? And so I pass the driver, and I'm like, you know, my alert status up. I'm ready to judge people. And I look down the cavity of the bus, and it's the weirdest thing. The bus is almost all empty, except for eight of the most hardcore-looking men I've ever seen in my life sitting in the back of the bus. And I'm all like, what would Jack Kerouac do, right? <laughs> so I skip past the like 28 empty safe seats and decide like, I'm gonna sit next to these guys. And as I'm skipping, I'm like, whoa, their luggage is like one cardboard box per dude with numbers on it. That's weird. Covered in tattoos and they have muscles bulging out of their t-shirts. Oh, okay. So I decide I'm gonna sit next to the gentleman with Roman numerals tattooed on his eyelids. <laughs> because I think to myself, oh, he's probably got some good stories. I mean, so I sit next to this guy, and of course I find out with my first question that they were recently paroled from the last stop, which was Pelican Bay State Penitentiary. And I'm like a 16-year-old with little, like, pigtail braids. Like, what are your eyelids about, you know? And they were so nice. They answered all my prison questions. <laughs> and <laughs> so <laughs> people start coming on the bus. Every stop, people, like, like, they don't want to, but they're sitting closer and closer to us, you know? And I'm asking question after question, but all the answers are really depressing, right? And I'm like, prison is not as cool as I thought it was. What a letdown. And so finally, I'm like, what's the best part of prison, though? What's your favorite part of the day? And the guys instantly, Jerry Springer. They get to watch Jerry Springer. And they start going, Jerry, 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 with their fist in the air, muscles. I was like, ah. And I'm thinking, what am I going to do? They've nicknamed me, nicknamed me Goldilocks at this point, right? And I'm like, what, Goldilocks? What? I can't do anything about this. So the whole bus is like, what is going on back there? Jerry. And the person in front of me, or in front of eyelid gentlemen, actually, uh, obviously did not get the memo that these were recently paroled inmates. And she decides to say something about them being so loud. And she turns around, can you please stop making all that noise? And I'm like, oh, dude, that was stupid. Uh-uh. Like, you know, I'm all like, no, 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 not a good idea. And, of course, these guys have not had an authority figure that they could tear down in a long time. And so they start terrorizing this woman. And they start shaking her seat with such force that the bolts actually come out of the floorboard. And I'm, I'm all Goldilocks. I'm pigtails. I'm not like Margaret Thatcher. I can't, I'm not going to. What am I going to do, right? I can't do anything. And so inside I'm screaming. I'm like, oh, God, they're hurting that lady. So, and I, but I feel like I can't do anything. I'm 16. What am I going to do? And the bus driver starts to pull off the road. And I'm thinking, good, the bus driver gets it. But the bus driver didn't get it. They were just pulling off because it was the convenience store stop. But that was a perfect foil because these guys have not been to a convenience store in however long. And they start hooting and hollering. They stop harassing this woman. And they jump out, and they're just running to the beer section because they haven't had a beer in a long time. 
And right when they get there and they're starting to pull six packs out of the fridge, the convenience store owner goes, no, the beer section's closed for this stop. Because obviously there's been problems in the past with drunk inmates on the bus for 10 more hours, right? <laughs> it makes sense. But at the time I was like, screw you, authority figure. You know, I was right there with them, like whatever. And so, uh, and, so, <laughs> and so these guys, they turn around and they're going to rip the head off the guy. You know, they're so angry. And they come out and they're spitting and they're yelling at everyone on the bus. And I'm like, oh God, like the bus is full now for 10 more hours. I'm going to sit next to these guys that are just so angry and muscular and stuff. And that's when I remember I have Altoid tins full of joints <laughs> on the bus. And I run and get them and I distribute them like some kind of weird nurse amongst the inmates. And they light up and it was beautiful. And the solution was not legal, okay? But it was beautiful because those inmates sober or drunk would have been hell on that bus. And stone, they just fell asleep. It was, it was awesome. And it's like, you know, in the Goldilocks story, when she's walking to the house with the bears and eating their porridge and, and trying to be a bear by sleeping in their beds, and you're thinking, you idiot, Goldilocks, get out of the house, right? Like I was. And sometimes risky situations make you be more than you were, be more than you are. And at that point in my life, I had never been a hero, ever. And I wasn't even generous. You know, I was selfish. I was a teenager. But... At that point, I was a hero. I was 16, and I was a hero to eight inmates that were surly. And that's something that really sticks with you. Thank you. Katrina Scotto DiCarlo. You're listening to Livewire Radio. With music, conversation, and comedy, we're like a party that happens inside your headphones with tiny little people and little pigs in blankets and other microscopic crudite. And now Livewire presents Discontinued Car Alarms. Sure, everyone is familiar with this one. But did you know that every year, automobile companies review and dismiss a wide range of different alarm types? Here's a few examples of some that didn't quite make the cut. The inbound police car. The pit bull. The lord. Don't steal. The British air raid. The Wookiee. The reverse psychology. Yeah, go ahead and steal the car. I don't need it. Really, do it. Just totally steal it, because that's what mature, respectful people do. You'd be doing me a favor, so do it. Come on, do it. The predator. Oh, God. The transformer. Autobots transform. The ex-girlfriend. Stealing cars? Way to go, Jerome. God, I'm so glad I broke up with you. I mean, that was a huge mistake. The Eddie Van Halen solo. The shotgun cocking. The Ted Nugent. The Thanksgiving dinner. Son, you're massacring the turkey. A simple Thanksgiving. That's all I asked for. Boys need to cut their hair. It's too long nowadays. Fine, you said that? I'm leaving. Dale. The 56K modem. And finally, everybody's favorite, the impending arrival of the gang from Beat It. Mm-hmm. Tune in next time to Livewire for more discontinued car alarms. And in the meantime, try to get some sleep. You've got a big day tomorrow. That was called Leisure. Trisha Ferguson, Darius Pierce, and the sound effect stylings of one David Ian. We first talked to our next guest after his first documentary film, King Corn, came out. And uh, it was a wonderful film. Took a look at our dependence on corn, 
and uh, followed him as he farmed an acre of corn in Iowa. And two years later, Kurt Ellis is very busy. He's won a Peabody Award. He has made two more films, and he's co-founded Food Corps. And it's an organization that's working to give kids a healthy relationship to food by sending 50 volunteers into low-income neighborhoods to teach them to garden and help get high-quality, locally-grown foods into their schools. He also helped produce a documentary, Truck Farm, illustrating how Kurt's friend and co-producer Ian Cheney turned the bed of a 1986 Dodge pickup into a mini farm. Please welcome Kurt Ellis to Livewire. Welcome to the show, Kurt. Thanks, Courtney. It's great to have you back. It's awesome to be here. You, and it's great to have you back in Portland. You're actually living in New York now. I live in New York, which my mother really doesn't like. But she's here tonight, so it's okay. Well, I'm glad she's getting to see you. Um, <laughs> speaking of your childhood, I wanted to just talk briefly about, I know that you were a history major in college, but somehow you got this interest in the politics of food. How did that happen? That's a good question. I, you know, um, I think it was really weird to be uh, in college, kind of finishing our education, supposedly, and uh, have this realization that we had learned nothing about the most fundamental thing we do, which is eat. Uh, the stuff we put in our bodies three times a day, the, the food that made up our bones and bodies, like we didn't know where it came from or what it was made out of. And on some level, it made all of the kind of science and philosophy and history and stuff we had learned about seem uh, a little out of context, like that we didn't understand that fundamental thing of food. And so how did you seek to actually learn more about that? I'm still trying to learn more about it. I mean, it's been a long journey. But my, my best friend Ian and I, after, well, during college, we did funny stunts. Like, we released sheep under the campus quad and ruined the ultimate Frisbee field and ticked a lot of people <laughs> off. And then uh, tried to get our fellow students excited about food and agriculture. And then uh, after college, we moved to Iowa for uh, a couple of years and grew an acre of corn there and made this film that tried to explore where food comes from uh, in the most industrial sense, kind of where fast food comes from, high right. fructose corn syrup and corn-fed meat. And then uh, we got back to New York and um, realized that we didn't have anywhere to grow food anymore, but we had this very real sense in ourselves that we wanted to grow food and that um, we wanted to grow food that was not quite like the corn syrup we had grown before, but was fresh and healthy. Right. So we planted a garden in the back of a pickup truck, because that was the only land we had. And, and you drove it around to people? Yeah, we drove it around. We, uh, we realized pretty quickly that we had not created a garden for ourselves. We had created a garden for other people who were excited to see it and hold their kids up and talk about it and called us and said, can you bring the truck farm to your schools? So uh, we started doing that, and there are now actually uh, 23 truck farms around the United States that are these kind of mobile school garden projects. There's one based right here in Portland, uh, PDX Truck Farm, uh, is a fabulous project. You can find them on Facebook and uh, support the cause. So how was it that you went from being a documentary filmmaker to starting Food Corps? Right, so uh, there was something that happened somewhere along the way for me um, where I realized that I was kind of um, frustrated at uh, talking about the solutions that were needed but not actually getting my hands dirty creating those solutions. So Food Corps is an effort to uh, correct that problem as I see it. So. Um, We've started a national AmeriCorps program, a kind of Teach for America for school food, um, that recruits young leaders from around the country uh, to spend a year of modestly paid public service uh, giving kids uh, an understanding of what healthy food is through nutrition education, uh, hands-on engagement with where healthy food comes from through school gardens, and uh, an access to healthy food every day in their school cafeterias. Uh, through changing where food comes from and uh, making sure kids get fresh fruits and vegetables in school. So what's wrong with school lunches right now? I, Just overall. Maybe that, the, maybe that they're all one color. 
<laughs> is a good place to start. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's, you know, there's like a lot of beige foods. I mean, I, I had a lot of chicken patties at Lake Ridge growing up here, and like, uh, I'm, uh, I think it's really important that we diversify what is being served for school lunch. But it's more than just changing that to get grass-fed beef and food that's not uh, filled with antibiotics and hormones and stuff in, into kids' bodies. It also means we have to change the food culture of a school. We have to create a healthy food environment, a place where um, it actually is cool to eat your vegetables, which I know is a little scary to my nieces and nephews uh, in the audience. But the, uh, the idea being like we have to um, get kids excited about going to a salad bar and tasting the winter greens that the farmer uh, outside of, of town here in Canby grew for them. Um, because those are the foods that are going to actually make them uh, strong and healthy, and uh, the foods that are going to save them from the ravages of a childhood obesity epidemic that right now costs Americans $147 billion a year in medical costs, and has one in three kids on a track to develop type 2 diabetes. Uh, well. They're actually doing this in some Portland schools, um, and they, they spoke to some of the cafeteria workers, and the cafeteria workers said the kids love the food. They, they said a lot of the kids are watching the Food Network, so they're really enjoying the food. <laughs> um, what's, what's been your experience of some of these kids? I think that's right. I mean, you know, we, we see it in that um, when you get kids excited about healthy food, they then are the ones who go home and convert their parents. It's kind of awesome. They, like, show up with recipe cards because a chef from the Chef's Move to Schools program that uh, our first lady started comes to their school and talks with them and teaches them how to cook a healthy meal. Those kids go home and they say, Mom, Dad, like, we can do this. We can grow a garden here and we can get fresh food and we can cook it for ourselves and we can be healthy and actually, secretly, it tastes good. That's pretty (laughs) awesome to say. Well, what, what do you see in these kids when you're actually showing them to grow things? How are they responding to that? It's pretty simple magic. I mean, uh, the the studies bear it out, but anybody who's um, ever hung out with a kid in a garden knows it's true. Like, if a child has a chance to grow uh, fresh food themselves, they're more likely to eat it. They're going to try that tomato or that scary piece of spinach uh, that otherwise might seem kind of intimidating and kind of gross on a plate. And uh, that's, that's pretty awesome to see happening at scale. Well, and it seems like this is so much about self-sufficiency. And in the current economic climate, I think the way that things are going, what are the benefits of self-sufficiency for any of these families? Well, I mean, there are, there are tangible economic benefits that come out of uh, sourcing food from local farmers that builds the local economy and um, helps generate income and, and revenue for folks right here uh, in Portland. But also, if you're building farm-to-school relationships, and kids are coming to learn that they can actually grow food, I think that's an incredibly empowering thing for a child to learn. That, like, here you were just a few years ago, you were totally dependent on your parents to, to feed you, and now suddenly you're able to grow a carrot yourself, and you can eat it yourself, and you feel so proud of this beautiful bright orange thing that you've made. And uh, that, to me, is just awesome. And you have um, 50 very, very enthusiastic uh, students all around the country, and uh, what was your experience? You were you were with them during their orientation. What was your experience with these kids? Yeah, you know, we we selected these fifty young leaders who are our first class of service members from a candidate pool of twelve hundred and twenty nine people who applied. It was just incredible, and we're trying to grow Food Corps. That's our big goal. Is we want to be in all fifty states. We're currently working in ten states, and we want to have a thousand service members a year doing this work. We currently have fifty service members doing this work. Um, I have never met a more passionate, committed, talented, motivated group of people in my life. And uh, I just welled up with tears every single day of of our training. Uh, It really was an incredible experience to meet these people and hear about the personal stories that had brought them there, overcoming childhood obesity themselves, uh, growing up on food stamps and realizing that the food we feed kids in these school feeding programs, you know, 31 million kids a day get their food from school lunch. Uh, these things are really, really important. And if we can uh, work with young leaders who represent the communities where they're serving and we can help solve these problems all across the country, um, I think great things are possible in the way we treat that most fundamental thing, the, the food we eat every day. There, yeah. Um, 
Um, I wanted to harsh everyone's mellow for a moment but, and talk briefly about... Not um, mine, I hope. <laughs> well, there was a, a wonderful article. Mark Bittman at the New York Times is a huge supporter of Food Corps, but he mentioned in his article that, that you've invested $2 million in the Food Corps program, and corporate farmers have invested $30 million to promote the idea that they're committed to providing healthy choices. So how do you compete with that? It's an interesting challenge, and I guess, you know, the way we approach our work at Food Corps is to set the table, and we invite people to the table, and we want to work with the people who want to work with us, and if large food interests are interested in really, truly changing the way kids eat in America, and really improving the health of kids in America, and overcoming this massive obesity uh, generation that we have created, um, then we are willing to work with them, but if all they want to do is... Uh, talk about solving the problem without actually changing anything, then that's going to be a harder, uh, harder thing for us to accept. What's at stake if we don't fix this? Well, I mean, what's at stake if we don't fix it is uh, a far more expensive healthcare crisis than the one we have today, for starters, um, but also something I think that culturally is pretty dangerous, which is um, we imagine ourselves to be the greatest civilization in the world, and yet we don't have a working food system. We don't have a way of getting food to people that doesn't make them sick. Uh, and that is a great failing. And I think if we look at where America is headed and how wonderful this great country of ours can be, I think we have to start with the fundamentals. We have to go back to those simple things and make sure food and clothing and water and shelter are really dealt with in a respectful, sustainable way over the long term. Well, and I also, I, I read that, that, yeah, absolutely. That this generation of, of children is the first generation uh, that is not going to outlive their parents. It's kind of incredible. In of I mean, yeah, the, the, the realities of heart disease and type 2 diabetes and the complications we're setting ourselves up for have this generation of kids on track to have a shorter life expectancy uh, than the generation before them. And that's something the world history has never seen. So... Um, these things really, really matter, and I think we can get them right. So for more information, they can go to foodcore.org? You sure can. Go to foodcore.org, find out how you can help. Thanks so much for joining us. Kurt Thanks. Ellis, everybody. to Livewire. Tonight's show is brought to you in part by Whole Foods Market and the Whole Kids Foundation, whose goal is to improve children's nutrition and wellness through partnerships with schools, educators, and innovative organizations like Food Corps. Information about helping children reach their full, healthy potential can be found at wholekidsfoundation.org. And now, another look back at the early days of Livewire with this special rebroadcast from 1956. To all you Livewire secret decoders out there, listen up. Because here is this week's super secret message. Now remember, kids, only those with the Livewire secret decoder ring can crack the code. To get the ring, you need 15 box tops from Bonkers Cereal, the only breakfast cereal topped off with seven scoops of energy-boosting white sugar. Also, you need to send 12 proof-of-purchase labels from Little Slugger's Cigarettes, the cigarette doctor recommended for steady nerves and increased vigor. But remember, boys and girls, if you're not 13 yet, your older brother will have to buy them for you. And you mustn't forget sending in the rubberized safety pin from your Remington 22 sharpshooter rifle with the hair-trigger firing mechanism. After sending in your labels plus a $2.29 payment for secret handling, you'll be sent a 15-page top-secret application. Address it to Warehouse 7B Laramie, Wyoming. It will then be covertly forwarded to our double-secret headquarters somewhere in the Florida Keys. If approved, you'll get the ring in 8 to 20 weeks. But don't tell anybody. You never know what ruski thief is lurking nearby. Here we go. Livewire is counting on the secret circle, kids. Set your secret pins to A7. Here we go, kids. Here is the secret message. Three, ten, twenty-two, six, one. That was the secret message.
For those without the secret decoder ring, the message is rhubarb. That was a special secret message from Livewire, brought to you by Rock Hudson's ladies' man, Cologne, and Mr. Snazzy's automobile cocktail holder. Make sure your drive is as dry as your martini with Mr. Snazzy's. And now back to Livewire and your host, Sally Hammerson. That was a rebroadcast from 1956. Thanks for listening and tune in next time for another vintage broadcast. That was Darius Pierce. You're listening to Livewire Radio, radio variety for the ADD generation. We'll be right back. Now, as promised, the man who has been toiling away while we've been playing. To sum it all up for us, please welcome poet Scott Poole. What I Learned Tonight by Scott Poole. I have an admission. I secretly love bad writing. I like greasy bad writing like greasy bad candy. And if you think there is no bad candy, well, you're absolutely right, except for Twizzlers. (laughs) But I'm not into just any bad writing, but really passionate, sweaty, blabbering, not washing your t-shirts regularly bad writing. I like wearing bad writing like a pair of yellow wax lips. Hell, like wearing a pair of yellow wax underwear. The kind you want at the fair by trying to throw a softball at the milk jugs, but instead hit the giant Motley Crue mirror over the jugs, spraying glass shrapnel into a five-year-old's corndog, glistening grease sheen. So the carny gives you the yellow wax lips to shovel you down the midway before the mullet-clad parental guardians beat you senseless with a churro. So when a bad writer says something like, Your eyes haunt me like two haunting eyes that haunt with a lot of haunting. (laughs) It's like sitting next to an escaped prisoner on the hound, rolling one joint after another after you pass one kid hated vegetable filled field after another with Roman numeral tattoos on his eyelids, blinking, 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 adding the centuries up. It's intoxicating. Like ripping apart a bus seat when you have to sit on its scratchy springs for the next 14 hours. Sure, you could just say, your eyes are like two Dan Madigan softly strumming at the edge of the signal fire of my heart and aching lullabies softly settling into the background smoke of my dreams. But if you add, I like porridge. Right after that, it sets up such a memorable infinite set of resonances that good writing just can't match with its matchless matching like a tennis match with another tennis match without Venus or Serena or Billie Jean King, I guess. Like a guy talking through a movie, it's so comforting to have someone giving commentary on their own writing as they're reading it to you. Sure. I love you has its own simple perfection, but I love you because this is the part I say I love you, so I'm saying I love you now because that's expected, so here I go. I love you, says so much more than you ever knew you ever wanted to know. Thank you. 
Ladies and gentlemen, once again, Dan Mangan. smokes that keeps me awake all through the night my heart shakes so I live alone drink beer by the phone and it keeps me alive I know there is hope but I can't look for it there are leaves in the trees there are trees in the forest there are leaves in the trees, there are trees in the forest. Dave Jorgensen, and Jim Brunberg. Tonight's show is made possible in part by our sponsors, New Belgium Brewing Company, Whole Foods Market, and Dave's Killer Bread. Additional funding provided by the Regional Arts and Culture Council and Work for Art, the James F. and Marion L. Miller Foundation, and listeners like you fine people. Hotel accommodations generously provided by the Hotel Deluxe. Our executive producer is Robin Tenenbaum. The show is produced by Courtney Hommeister and Jim Brunberg. The faces for radio theater are writers Sean McGrath and Courtney Hommeister, performers Darius Pierce, Paul Glazier, and Trisha Ferguson, with sound effects by David Ian. 
Additional show writers are Jason Rouse, house poet Scott Poole, and Ben Coleman. Faces for Radio Theater was directed by Phil Ingorvaya. Our recording engineer is Jonathan Newsom. House sound by Graham Nystrom. Stage management by Matt King. And thank you to Rose City Sound. Show theme by Courtney Vondrele and Ralph Huntley. Livewire was created by Kate Sokoloff and Robin Tenenbaum. For more information about Livewire or to subscribe to our podcast, visit livewireradio.org. Wouldn't it be amazing to have a piping hot episode of Livewire delivered right to your heart and ears each week? Well, guess what? That can happen when you subscribe to the Livewire podcast feed and you'll get the joy of surprising conversation every week. So go ahead and do it. It's super easy. You click on the button at the top of your podcast app and bam, you are Livewire subscribed. And if you're still, you know, feeling the love, if you're enjoying the show, hey, maybe you could hook us up and uh, leave us a quick review. That'll help more people find out about Livewire. And thank you.